the computer's working this time. Well, happy Father's Day to my fathers out there. My name is Ben, and I serve as one of the pastors here at Common Ground. And I have a confession I need to make to you. Before we came to visit in February of 2022, um, before I was even offered this position, I used to call this state Nevada. It's, it's well-learned, it, it's sacrilege, I get it, I get it. I also dry between each toe after I shower. I put, on, I put on socks before I put on a shirt. And I also collect my toenail clippings in a jar. Okay, the last one wasn't true. Or is it? I bet many of you have some weird confessions you could make as well. We're not gonna, we're not gonna show of hands for any weird stuff. Except I did find these particular gems on the internet. Let's see if uh, any of you can relate to, to one of these. I used to pretend the microwave is a bomb and stop it at one second left, <laughs> feeling like I had just saved the world. Anybody? Come on, I've done that, come on. All right, how about this one? I can't stand odd numbers. The volume on the radio, the TV channel, anything, it has to be even numbers only. Anybody? Come on, this is a safe space. Wow. Bunch of weirdos in here. And lastly, uh, when I'm alone in a car, I pretend to interview myself like I'm on TV. Don't raise your hands, we don't want to know. The word confession is an interesting word because it carries with it both a negative and a positive connotation. To confess during a police interview or in a court of law is to admit, admit that you are guilty of a crime. This is also true when we confess our sins to God, when we acknowledge we have trespassed against his righteous and perfect standard. But when we confess to God, when we admit we have wronged him, we're also acknowledging we believe in his moral authority. We believe in his, his power to actually set that standard. Including in this is the idea of agreeing with and conforming to a set of doctrinal beliefs about this God, about the Christian faith. And that's where we get statements about the confessions of the Christian faith. What we believe is not only true, but also binding. So those confessions we started off with were mostly quirky and harmless, except for the odd number one. If that was you, let's make an appointment. <laughs> but what happens when it's about something really important? Like when it could really cost us to get the confession wrong or cost us to get the confession right? Researchers, researchers at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary estimate that more than 70 million Christians have been martyred over the last two millennia, more than half of which died in the 20th century under fascists and communist regimes. Christians martyred for getting the confession right. As horrific as this sounds, this number pales in comparison to the number of souls who have met their eternity getting the confession wrong. Confessions are important. Today we are continuing our series in a confession called the Apostles' Creed, a succinct doctrinal statement about the irreducible cores of Christian beliefs. 
The creed is not sacred. It's not scripture. It's not breathed out by God, but it accurately sums up the bedrock truths of Christianity from the Bible. Truths that have been recognized and practiced in the, in the creed for the last 18 centuries as a sign of unity and authenticity. Last week, Preston took us through the first confession, the first line of the creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. A right Christian worldview must begin with those truths, absolutely fundamental. All parts of the creed confession are vitally important and interconnected. We can't just pick out one because the rest wouldn't make sense. The rest would fall apart and it would no longer be Christianity. That's super important. That being said, today could rightly be called the most vitally importantest. I know, sorry teachers. Our main idea this morning is pretty simple and to the point. Don't get this wrong. So here's another confession. Preparing today's message was pretty tough for me because it's about Jesus. That kind of sounds like a weird confession, right? Gosh, Ben, that should be easy since you're a pastor. Isn't everything you do about Jesus? Yes, it is. Every message that comes from the pulpit ought to be pointing people to the person and work of Jesus Christ. But consider this quote from John MacArthur. When it comes to the word of God, I'm always drawn to the person of Jesus Christ. The Old Testament is the anticipation of Christ. The Gospels are the incarnation of Christ. The book of Acts is the proclamation of Christ. The epistles are the explanation of Christ. And the revelation is the glorification of Christ. It's all about him. I wholeheartedly agree with that synopsis. So where do we start? If the whole Bible is about Jesus, we could be here a while. The Bible contains about 116 names and titles for Jesus. Should we start there? Again, that could take hours, and Alex Hall is in the third through fifth grade Sunday school class, and he said he is not staying that long. <laughs> Don't blame him. My goal this morning is to give you a taste, to get you excited for doing your own study in God's word to, to prove this quote true, and we're going to use the creed to do that. In the weeks ahead, we will examine other fundamental truths about Jesus stated in the creed. And so there's going to be some natural overlap at times. We began last week with, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. Today, we continue with, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. Now, in case you missed it, Derek laid out the purpose behind the creed two weeks ago when we started this, this series. The three purposes for the creed's existence are confession, meaning the public statement of beliefs necessary to the claim of being a Christian. Clarity, which is distinguishing the right statement of beliefs from the false statement of beliefs about Christianity. And lastly, completion, the goal of having a well-rounded, rooted, theologically deep and growing spirituality in all areas of doctrine, even the ones that we don't necessarily want to examine or avoid. That's what we're driving towards this morning. Our statement in the creed today comes almost word for word from scripture. So go ahead and open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16, we're gonna be looking at verses 13 through 16. 
If you do not have a Bible, there's a, a blue one under the seat in front of you. If you don't own a Bible, please take that one home with you. Matthew chapter 16, beginning in verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. This passage reveals three particular aspects of Jesus directly mentioned in the creed. The first is the title Christ, then his familiar designation as Son, and finally the claim of Lord. A huge portion of the creed centers around Jesus' work and identity. So we'll get more in depth in the weeks ahead as we cover those various themes. But today let's start with confession, the confession that Jesus is the Christ. We've talked a lot from this stage about the term Christ many, many times, but we could never actually fully exhaust it. Christ is the Greek word for Messiah, and Messiah is the Hebrew word for the promised one, the anointed one of God, the deliverer, the lamb of God. Here's where we could take those 116 different titles and names for Jesus and insert them into the message. But what does all this mean? Well, the Old Testament, the first 39 books of the Bible, is the context for this title, and it's, it's kind of important. Where God reveals his perfect and holy law, forms a people group dedicated to observing this law, and records a very detailed history of how they perpetually turned their devotion elsewhere and break the law. So what, so what is this law? Well, Jesus summed it up in Matthew 22 when the Pharisees tried to trick him with a question. When they asked him, Jesus, what is the most important law? And he summed it up by saying, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets, meaning the entirety of the Old Testament Bible. This is the struggle recorded in the Old Testament, how God's people repeatedly devoted themselves to loving something other than God the Father, creator of heaven and earth. And this began all the way in the garden, the Garden of Eden, with the first two humans, Adam and Eve. Woven into the Old Testament are threads in a tapestry. And when you put all the threads together, you get this picture. And that picture, that image, is of Jesus. There are many of these threads pointing to Jesus, anticipating Jesus. And I encourage you to do your own study. I encourage you to get excited about looking for these threads. But today we're just going to focus on three, which is a lot, so i got to talk faster. <laughs> Through the people of Israel, God used three primary stations, or, or positions, if it were, to reveal and em emphasize this struggle against sin. And those positions are prophet, priest, and king. The prophets declared God's law to the people. The priests administered God's law for the people, and the kings defended God's law and the people. Some of these positions were filled, filled with extremely wicked people. But even the good ones violated God laws, God's laws at some point. Elijah, the famous prophet who faced off against 600 prophets of Baal, immediately fled after this stunning victory because a woman, a woman threatened his life. 
Now, not to minimize the wrath of an angry woman, <laughs> but, but really, bro, you just saw the fire of the Lord fall from heaven and consume your sacrifice, and now you're depressed and scared? How about Aaron, the brother of Moses, the first high priest, who caved to peer pressure, peer pressure and built an idol for the, for the people to worship while Moses was on Mount Sinai receiving the law? Aaron, my dude, the lightning and thunder of God is literally right there in view. How about David, the famous warrior king, slayer of giants, a man after God's own heart, who committed lust, murder, and adultery? Come on, man. After all the battles, after all you've witnessed of God's faithfulness and provision all these years, and you can't keep your pants on? Every great hero in the Old Testament has one thing in common. Every single one was a sinner who violated God's laws. Israel, for all of its faults, knew this and cried out to God for a deliverer, a perfect prophet, a perfect priest, a perfect king, one who would lead them to life everlasting, cleanse God's people from all unrighteousness, and make a permanent end to the struggle against sin. And God promised this perfect one would come and liberally sprinkled clues about him throughout the Old Testament, all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 when it was first broken. And these, the promise would be that this would be the Messiah, the Christ. So when we confess Jesus is the Christ, we confess that he sinlessly declares God's law as the perfect prophet. Jesus said in John 12, 48, there is a judge for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words. The very words I have spoken will condemn them at the last day. For I did not speak on my own, but the Father who sent me commanded me to say all that I have spoken. I know that his command leads to eternal life. So whatever I say is just what the Father has told me to say. Did you know that Jesus never spoke on his own behalf? This completely refutes the false belief that the God of the Old Testament is different from the God of the New Testament. Jesus' voice was the human conduit for the words of Father God. This includes the numerous times Jesus quotes Scripture, also God's words. And with his words comes the weight of authority from God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. Ignoring them comes with infinite, immeasurable peril. When we confess Jesus is the Christ, we confess that he sinlessly administered God's law for God's people as the perfect priest. Administering the law involved the shedding of the blood of a spotless animal as a sacrifice. And on the cross, Jesus administered himself, fulfilling the role of perfect high priest and sinless atoning sacrifice at the same time. In Matthew 27, 50, during the cruci crucifixion of Jesus, the moment he gave up his spirit, the moment he died, the curtain separating the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Well, what's the significance of that? So much more than I can cover today. This is just a taste. That curtain separated God's holy, awesome, righteous presence from the rest of the people and was only crossed by the high priest once a year for the yearly atoning sacrifice. 
They tied a rope around his ankle in case he still had sin in his heart and entered God's presence and died so they could fish him out. That happened. Because of Jesus' infinite worthiness as the perfect priest and lamb, because of the righteousness he imparts to us, we don't need to be shielded from God's holy, awesome, righteous presence anymore but can boldly approach the throne of grace clothed in the righteousness Jesus bestows to us through our belief. When we confess Jesus is the Christ, we confess that he sinlessly defends God's law and God's people as the perfect king. When we examine the Gospels, we find it loaded with examples of Jesus defending God's law from those who tried to warp it. During his temptation in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus corrects Satan, who misquotes Psalm 91, and rebukes him for it. His zeal for God's law prompted him to flip over tables and drive the money changers out of the temple with a whip. He defended the law against religious leaders, some who were curious, others who wanted to kill him. He touched lepers, protected harlots, dined with traitors, and commanded illness and demons to flee. His sermons, parables, and teaching moments all capture the heart of what it means to be devoted to God. Throughout his ministry, Jesus focused on correcting what the religious leaders had perverted through their own sinful interpretations, through, their, through adding their own laws in an attempt to, be, to become righteous, when really all they accomplished was self-righteousness. In Matthew 5.18, Jesus says, I assure you that nothing will disappear from the law until heaven and earth are gone. The law will not lose even the smallest letter or the smallest part of a letter until it has all been done. The sinless king perfectly defended God's law and his people. So confessing Jesus is the Christ, is, it's kind of a big deal. And it carries with it the hopes and the longing of over 2,000 years of human history recorded in the Old Testament. Confessing Jesus is the Christ is acknowledging his perfect, sinless humanity as the representative for mankind. Someone has to stand in our place to plead our case. How though? How could he sinlessly and perfectly proclaim God's law, administer God's law, and defend God's law? Well, this is only possible because of his divinity, which leads us to our clarifying statement. Let's go back to Peter's confession in Matthew 16. Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus is the perfect prophet, priest, and king because he's also the son of God. Well, let's clarify that. Jesus does something really interesting in our text today. He asks a rhetorical question, a question that he already knows the answer to, and uses it as an opportunity to, to reveal something miraculous. Jesus asks his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. I can't think of a more divisive question to ever be uttered, both in first century Judea as well as 21st century Carson City. Who is Jesus? Those alive when Jesus asked this question believe he was a dead prophet from Jewish history, come back to life. 
but not the Messiah, and certainly not God. Other thoughts and theories have been proposed through the ages. Some believed he was an angel. So the author of Hebrews in chapter 1 refuted this notion. Others believe he was a created being because of the misunderstood words begotten and firstborn used to describe Jesus. But the Apostle John refuted this in John chapter 1 when he says that Jesus is God. Islam, as, as Preston mentioned last week, believes he was a prophet who should be revered. But they also believe he was born of a virgin. Did you know that? That he was sent by God, performed miracles, and ascended into heaven in bodily form. They even believe he will come again in the latter days. But as a follower of Muhammad, to revive Islam in the world, and he's certainly not God. Hinduism believes Jesus is a God, one of millions. To the Buddhist, Jesus was a righteous teacher who reached enlightenment. Mormonism teaches that he is Heavenly Father's spiritual offspring, a created being and brother to Satan. The New Age movement, the precursor to secular humanism we have today, limits him to a good moral teacher. In fact, 52% of our country thinks that Jesus is a good moral teacher and nothing else. We don't have time to debunk every world religion, so let's get down to the practical. Your friends, neighbors, and coworkers who know of Jesus but are not a follower of Jesus most likely think he's a good moral teacher. C.S. Lewis addressed this ridiculous notion in Mere Christianity when he wrote, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a good moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He's not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Know someone who thinks Jesus is a good moral teacher? Show them John 14, 6 through 11, where Jesus tells his disciples, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The Father and I are one because I'm also God. Or John 8, 59, where Jesus calls himself Yahweh, the name of God revealed in Exodus. Or, or Matthew eleven twenty seven, Mark 2, 5 through 7, Luke 5, 17 through 26. There's nothing good or moral or sane about claiming to be God, unless it's true. So what's the truth? The truth is that Jesus Christ, the Messiah, is God. As the divine prophet, Jesus could sinlessly confess God's words, or profess God's words, because Jesus is God's words. That's why John describes him this way in John chapter 1. He writes, in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. 
Skip down to verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as, the only, as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. When Jesus speaks, they are God's words. When God speaks, it's about Jesus. Picture new parents gushing about their new kid to anyone within earshot. Why do they do this? Because they're completely enamored by this child in their life. Later on in the teen years, that's usually complaining. <laughs> God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, never tires of gushing about his son Jesus because he's fully enamored by him. When you open your Bible and read God's word, you're reading about Jesus. When God spoke the universe into existence, that was Jesus. Why does scripture have so much power? Because it reveals Jesus. As the divine priest, Jesus accomplished the impossible offering, the ultimate sacrifice, by taking into himself the penalty for sin. It will take every sinner in hell an eternity to satisfy the wrath of God's holy justice. It took Jesus about three dark hours on the cross to pay for the countless millions who will believe. There's not an act we can do, no altar to bring a blood sacrifice, no great deeds to perform because Jesus accomplished it all. Romans 5, 6 through 11 says, for while we were still weak, meaning slaves to sin, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, Shall we be saved by his life? More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Man, that's a big word, reconciliation. It's, it's the whole point of the law, to restore peace between God and man because of man's sin. And Jesus administered reconciliation perfectly and completely. So what does God want from you? What was the point of that reconciliation? It's the same thing he's always wanted. Your heart, your soul, your mind. Because of Jesus, this is now actually possible because of his sacrifice and righteousness. As the divine king, Jesus fiercely guards his flock against the slings and arrows of the evil one because our battle isn't against flesh and bone, but against the spiritual forces aligned with God. Jesus said in Matthew 12, 28, if it is by the spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Did you guys catch that? Jesus just blatantly called himself king. If the kingdom of God has come, that kingdom has a king. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods until, unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. That's king speak. 
We need a stronger man. We need a stronger king to wrestle us out of the kingdom of darkness and bring us as rescued citizens into the kingdom of light. To, to leave the other 99 sheep and come and search for us when we are lost. To crush the head of the serpent and set the captives free. At the sound of his voice, the soldiers who came to arrest him fell to the ground as though dead. At the sound of his voice, demons squealed for mercy. Getting a little excited here. At the sound of his voice, death was beaten to life. I want to be a part of that kingdom. I want to follow and worship that king. And his name's Jesus, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Whew, all right, Ben, settle down. <laughs> so let's wrap this up. Let's wrap this up and make it nice and complete. We, we close today with a push towards making this clarified confession complete. Such good alliteration. Derek gets the credit for that. Let's go to back to Peter's answer. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Derek mentioned the significance of the term Lord in week one. How it's the Greek form of Yahweh, God's revealed name in Exodus. When, when Moses uh, was uh, conversing with God through the burning bush, Moses said, who shall I say send me? And God said, tell them I am sent you, meaning the self-existent living God is your sender. The biblical term Lord and living God are actually synonymous, which they mean the same thing, which, which, means that, which is why the creed says, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. In a few weeks, when we get to the resurrection part of the creed, we'll get more into, into this. But for today, let's, let's wrap this up. Jesus asks two questions in our text today. I, I picture him and the disciples walking because our text says, the passage says that they, they entered a particular re, a region. This teachable moment caught in transit was recorded for us today. And, and catch this, Jesus' first question is done in the third person. Who do people say the son of man is? Not who I am, even though everyone there knew he was talking about himself. His question comes across as kind of detached, a little impersonal. And it's because he's setting the stage for something miraculous, a divine revelation that occurs between the heart of man and God the Holy Spirit. The disciples answer the first question. Then he stops. He looks them in the eye and asks, but who do you say I am? This question echoes throughout creation, in every age, in every heart. And we must, we must, we must avoid the trap of knowing information about Jesus without confessing the two most important words in the creed. Our Lord. My Lord. Everything we've said so far, even the demons agree with. Did you know that? James 2.19 says, you believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Believe Jesus is the Messiah? Believe Jesus is God. So what? Any demon can read the creed. 
word for word and agree with every line, every detail, except declaring Jesus is his Lord. But the rebelliousness of both demons and man does nothing to change Jesus' right to rule and reign. And one day every knee will bow, every tongue will confess what? That Jesus is Lord. So we're left with the most important question of all. Is Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, your Lord? Do you believe his words are God's words? Do you gush over King Jesus? Do his words and words about him overflow from your mouth? In your worship, in your heart, in your conversations? Do you find rest and confidence in the reconciliation he provided on your behalf? Have you submitted to his right to rule and reign over all aspects of your life? Or are there areas you're keeping from him? Habits and patterns that maybe you're clinging to. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 says, since, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, meaning all the champions of heaven, all who have come before us, let us, lay, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So what weights get in your way? What sin clings to you that you need to lay aside? And are you looking to Jesus, setting your sights on him, the living Messiah, our perfect representative, our glorious king? That's where abundant life is found. That's where this confession leads. Is it your confession? I sure hope so, because you don't want to get this wrong. After the message, I'm going to be by the, the double doors in the back for those who have questions, for those who want to know more about what it means to confess Jesus Christ. In a moment, we're going to take communion, but I would caution you that communion is reserved for those who can make this confession with a clear conscience without reservation. If that's you, I invite you to stand with me as we read the creed together, after which I will pray. Then you are invited to come to one of the three tables and uh, retrieve the communion elements as we remember what it took to be reconciled to God. Join me now. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. Only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary, he suffered under Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, which reveals our salvation to us 
Father, I thank you for this, this moment that was captured in your word between Jesus and his disciples that reveals the work of your Holy Spirit in revealing truth to us. God, I pray that that spirit would be here right now, revealing truth in our hearts, illuminating our minds, and transforming us more and more into the person of Jesus Christ. God, I thank you and I praise you because you are worthy. You are worthy. You are our perfect prophet, our perfect sacrificial priest, and you are our glorious reigning king. May you be glorified and honored this day. In Jesus' name, amen.